So Musk is on Mars, Zuckerberg's in Meta. Yeah. yeah. They talk about They're um, living in the spectacle, literally. They are. They're obs- you know? They are the spectacle. They are. All that yeah. is solid melts into air. It's a nightmare. Very much <laughs> they are literally the personification of an economic role in being the spectacle. It's perfect. It is definitive. They are definitive proof too that DeBoard is right that nobody at any strata of this society is actually living. Just like <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Today is Will. Hey. Lillian. Hi. And Owen. Coming to you from the Motel 6. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't expecting it. That was great. Yeah. All right. On today's episode, we're discussing some chapters of Guy Debord's 1967 book, The Society of the Spectacle. Debord was a French Marxist theorist and an artist. He was a founding member of the Situationist International a group of avant-garde artists and radical intellectuals, along with thinkers like Raoul Vanigam. The infamous student uprising of May 68 notably drew some inspiration from De Boer and Vanigam's work, with formulations from their texts sprayed on walls as graffiti all across Paris. It's not surprising why these people had a way with words. Here's a quote from Vanigam's The Revolution of Everyday Life, also 1967. Quote, People who talk about revolution and class struggle without referring explicitly to everyday life, without understanding what is subversive about love and what is positive in the refusal of constraints, such people have a corpse in their mouth. On their analysis, the development of the capitalist mode of production by the time of the mid-20th century had reached a new phase, culminating in what De Boer calls the spectacle. All that was once directly lived, DeBoer writes, has become mere representation. The spectacle is his name for the total mediation of social life by images. In spectacular society, we're presented with an endless stream of images, images of others, of ourselves, of all that can be known, imagined, and desired. The result is that we are fundamentally separated from ourselves. We find ourselves trapped in a peculiar state of intoxicated passivity, and life itself becomes unlived and unlivable. The spectacle can be understood as the negation of life. First off, because life is not imaged, but must be lived. An image, by contrast, is always a dead thing. If, in a previous stage of economic domination, being was downgraded to having, DeBoard suggests, in the present stage, having is reduced further to appearing. One way to understand this shift is perhaps as the hegemonic victory of the realm of pure consumption, paradoxically, at a historical moment when the sphere of production becomes fully dominant. But we can also say that in the spectacle, life is subverted and replaced by mere survival. This is a thread linking Debord and Vonnegut's divergent critiques of modern society. They both consider the downgrading of life to survival as one of the characteristic features of contemporary alienation. We can say then that the spectacle is alienation raised to the status of a near absolute. This alienation is tied to the contradictory character of capitalism, whose successful production in abundance reverts to an abundance of dispossession and whose mode of total social integration is a unity through separation. We are the lonely crowd, encountering each other only as images mediated through an endless proliferation of screens. On these screens appear everything that is good, and everything that is good appears to us. In this way, DeBoer can talk about the production of pseudo-needs, or the manufacturing of pseudo-desires, which amounts to a valve for releasing some of the pressure created by an endless overproduction crisis. It's not the technology that's the problem for De Boer, but the mediation of life by the image become autonomous. This also allows De Boer's critique, which might at first glance seem to be narrowly restricted to a condemnation of forms of mass media, 
to have a direct bearing on the brutal Stalinism that had claimed for itself the name of communism in the East. For there too, on de Boer's account, the issue was representation, a party claiming to represent the proletariat for itself, but whose image of the proletariat could only be a hollow bureaucratic representation. The Stalinist party, he suggests, was built for one thing only, seizing the state, which it did. But once it had done so, it could do little more than raise the spectacle of the image of the working class in opposition to the working class itself. This is a bureaucratic negation of the real movement of proletarian revolution. And, de Boer astutely noted, it would only be a matter of time before this sham populism would be outdone by the capitalist states. On the other side, fascism, too, has a spectacular character, reliant as it is on images of blood, race, the leader, pseudo-values mythically resurrected there where capitalism's internal contradictions threaten to lead the proletariat to actually challenge class domination. Against all this, de Boer wants to see a revival of genuinely historical thinking, picking up where Marx left off and reviving a proletariat that seeks to live, not merely to survive, which doesn't need leaders or teachers, and that neither needs nor wants to be represented, but which seeks to negate its separation from itself and from the bloodless world of the spectacle in a concrete movement of liberation. I want to just read one last quote here before rounding it out. He writes, No quantitative relief of its poverty, no illusory hierarchical incorporation can supply a lasting cure for its dissatisfaction. For the proletariat cannot truly recognize itself in any particular wrong it has suffered, nor therefore in the writing of any particular wrong, nor even in the writing of many such wrongs, but only in the writing of the unqualified wrong that has been perpetuated upon it, the universal wrong of its exclusion from life. So there's a whole lot more I think I could say, but I believe I've gone on long enough. Uh, hopefully this helped set things up properly. I'm very curious to hear what you all thought of this extremely provocative text. I'll start. So listening to your introduction, which was really great, and I appreciate it, it seems that one of the core animating threat, theoretical threat of what the board is talking about here is it seems that for him, real politics, we can put that in scare quotes, whatever real politics are, will be anti-representational. You know, um, in the longer fourth chapter that you had us, um, uh, well, you didn't have us, like you, you offered us to read, not like you're our dad or something. No, I gave you homework. <laughs> okay. I told you what to do. Fair enough. You <laughs> I made say us actively read. that I do my homework. Gil's my, Gil's my dad. I just can't speak for you guys. <laughs> That's well, been um, that way for a while. <laughs> then have to do another Freud episode on that one. Oh, no. Um, he, he really <laughs> likes um, the council system. He seems to yeah. think that, you know, the, the council system of, 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 of direct action is, you know, almost the only real politics. So to, to kind of like loop this into present day, I wonder if, you know, one of the, what the board is saying is that when politics becomes representation, it becomes spectacular becomes the spectacle it becomes uh investing agency in images of other things that are supposed to represent you whether it's a political representative whether it's a figure whether it's um like a tv show so my i guess my question here is can politics be anti-representational in in the board sense so what does it mean to do without representation in politics i, I want to put that as a question because i think that's very hard for me to think because i've grown up in a democracy a representative democracy. Uh, we have a house of representatives, you know, that our politics are supposed to influence our representatives to act on our desires. And it seems like he's talking about a different type of politics. They're supposed to. Um, <laughs> so, okay. So this is what I started to think about. So this was my movement of thought reading society of the spectacle in the first part of it, he's talking about this thing called the spectacle. And I think that there is, at first it was kind of about commodity fetishism and like the alienation, like an alienation read on what commodity fetishism is. Um, and then, and I think that's how maybe you would, you would like think this is going to be emphasized the media a lot or, or art, you know, kind of culture industry take, see our Adorno and Horkheimer ep. And then I was kind of, you know, interested in this because I just happened to have been 
reading a little bit more of the value form uh, theory stuff um, recently and the kind of Marxist, the resurgent Marxist interest in uh, the value form. And, and, I, and I thought there was something interesting about kind of taking this like alienated quality to either abstract labor, whether it's embodied in like an image or in commodities to talk about like the way it actually makes us see and represent ourselves. I liked that. And then, and that, and that's kind of what I think he meant because he, he uses like the phrase spectacular labor at one point. So that's kind of what made the connection to value form theory for, for me. And then like, as the reading progressed, I started to get this sense that like, yeah, that he wants to just like the only authentic politics is going to challenge that inversion that takes place in, in Marxist theory. And I think that's maybe what you mean, Will, by saying it's like anti-representational, like the inversion of uh, the value form, the alienation, you know, of labor. But then I was like, dude, you like all of these politics, like literally you just must be the most authentic political actor in the planet because just <laughs> there's just no kind of politics that works for you except for council communism. And then I just wondered, like, what does it mean to, like, demand that politics has to be authentic in this in this way, um, like kind of directly pegged to particular actors? When, like, the point, and I think I'm just reiterating Will's question, when, like, the point of politics, at least in my reading anyway, is to have institutions that actually are durable, but that are amenable to change through some kind of democratic will. But like to say that there's no representation involved, I'm just not sure there are any politics that actually satisfy that criteria, including council communism. Mm -hmm. So I just didn't really quite get what he was driving at by the end of it. Yeah, this is a really, a really good series of, I think, very hard questions. I mean, he's got this discussion of this, sort of movement from Hegel through to Marx and then also like through Bakunin and so forth. I think he thinks that a starting premise of like a whole bunch of this discussion coming out of the Hegelian tradition, which we've discussed in other places, uh, is that like the state represents us and those institutions that comprise civil society are modes of our representation, which can allow for or create the conditions for the possibility of our freedom or our actualization. And he thinks that, I guess, I guess he thinks that that's just a bad premise, right? That that like whole, that whole like way of framing what's going on in politics and what's going on in everyday life, which is what this is meant to be about, um, is confused if we like take that to be the case. At the same time, we know that, I think, I think we agree with him like in like a certain sort of spontaneous way. Like when, Will, you were saying before, like, oh, yeah, we've got these like representatives. We've got a house of representatives. Who the fuck do they represent? They don't represent me. Let's be clear. Right. Or like I was like imagining or remembering like, yeah, that image, that spectacular image of like Nancy Pelosi and the crew boosted don't up in it. kente cloths. Boosted ah, up and, I knew <laughs> and it's like, but there's meant to be an identification mm -hmm. or like there's meant to be, yeah, an identification uh, with the, the image being represented there. I'm supposed to see myself in that. And I just don't mm -hmm. um, like could. Well, the Gil, I mean, I'm not surprised you don't see yourself in Kente Claus. I'm not going to lie. Um, no, <laughs> it's none of my business. OK, Fair enough. but um. Mm -hmm. But no, I mean, he does start talking in like some concrete ways about like what he likes about the council, the worker council system. And it is things like, of course, there will be provisional leaders. These councils confederate with one another, but in ways where it's just like just another worker doing that, doing that work of, of like guiding things in a provisional way and always recallable, which that's, that's relatively concrete. And it's different than saying like, the DSA is going to represent the American working class or something. I'm not totally sure if that's a satisfying response, but I think it's getting at some of the sorts of problems that he's yeah, trying to hone in on. I think like, I mean, I wonder how much of it is like anti-representation as such or the realization that representation under conditions of spectacular society will always have this kind of false passive element, right? This, this 
representation under existing conditions is always structured in such a way as to like isolate, disempower, and re you know render you, render you passive. So I wonder if there is like even in the council systems or in I don't know politics which doesn't exist yet a kind of representation which isn't as engendering of passivity, which isn't as spectacularized or isn't captured by the you know the the, spe the spectacle in the same way if that makes sense yeah that's really cool so it, it would seem what you're saying and i think maybe the board is saying something like this like it's not representation as such that is the problem it's the conditions under which representation yeah. happens and the conditions are um and i don't want to go too quickly because he has some strange things to say about the economy like he has beef with the economy as such he has a problem <laughs> with um you know the economy being the thing that runs things. So we can get to that, but I, 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 I want to make this point really quickly that, you know, under these conditions of the capitalist mode of production and politics, representation is not instrumental. It's actually been turned into an end in itself. Mm. And so mm. we could maybe say something like representation is necessary for politics, but it's not sufficient. The problem is in society, the spectacle, representation is taken to be necessary and sufficient. And I don't want to make people upset, but I, I think about some things like, you know, representation matters. And it's as if, you know, if you get this sort of black body, you know, in this position of power, then some sort of politics must flow from that black body, given certain identity categories. But even more, the idea that the aim of politics is to have particular people who look X, Y, and Z way, um, and that you're supposed to live off of that image, rather than that it, you know that that person is supposed to be instrumental to some sort of effectivity. So mm -hmm. it, does that kind of align with what you're saying, Owen? That it's mm -hmm. not you know representation is bad in all circumstances. How representation is taken up in politics as an end in itself, as mm -hmm. you know, as the thing that politics is supposed to be enjoying and living off of. I actually I actually think that example of like you know what Cornell West calls like brown faces in high places uh, is is really illustrative of. Like I think what he's getting at here, right? Because that is a form that is representation as an end in itself, right? I think that's what he means. Right. What Cornell West means when he says that, like you know, we got to go mm -hmm. beyond brown faces in high places. It's that, like, uh, I think that the one of the ways that liberalism has has managed to integrate and to like n neutralize identity politics is by making it like a hundred percent about spectacularizing it entirely, right? Absorbing it into yeah. the spectacle, into an economy of images. Rather than any kind of, I don't know, true anti-racism, however that might look. Yeah, substantive policy or like content at the level of like changes yeah. in the way that like, you know, actual, yeah, lived reality is structured. Maybe we should just back up a little bit and just say like what like the spectacle is. Because I think this is, it's one of, this is okay. in the beginning of the book, certainly, although he continues this throughout it, he's constant, there must be, I don't know, 150 lines where he says the spectacle is, the spectacle is. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah, it's like a wild rhetorical refrain. It, it is. And it, it's, it's, mm -hmm. and it evolves. And, you know, the, the concept is like progressively enriched, like as he, as he moves along. So, you know, he says, I hope this isn't too much of a detour. I just want to see if we can get on the same page a little bit about what some of the essential yeah. features of the spectacle are, you know, cause he says that it's, it's no, not, I think that's really important because yeah, whether or not you're interested in the kind of, uh, problem that he is diagnosing and then saying that like the solution has to be real politics against the spectacle or against, mm -hmm. you know, the the prevailing, even the prevailing either capital or the prevailing revolutionary ideology in the Soviet union, Mm -hmm. Although I have to admit, I just like really don't like reading these texts really triggers me like the cold, <laughs> like the cold, the cold war framing of this stuff is like 60 years later. It's just so clear. And it just I'm kind of like really neither fascism. Is it the both, both sides or something? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Neither fascism mm. nor the Soviet Union and the real answers, the real politics and the true revolutionary yeah. tradition that just has not come. You know, and then I thought, wow, your criticisms of Trotsky are kind of ironic because like that is basically the appeal of Trotskyism as the yeah. true revolutionary <laughs> tradition. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Like over and against the Soviet so Union, true. like neither Washington nor <laughs> Moscow, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and actually I thought his criticisms of Trotsky were – extremely weak, like totally not getting the point of what 
most Trotskyists think that they are doing, which aligns very well with his own like authentic revolutionary mm -hmm, bottom up mm -hmm. politics way of thinking mm -hmm. about things. Mm -hmm. Cause like I at first thought this was a Trotskyist text and then he had these like weird paragraphs where it was like, even Trotsky, blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, he's good also on French, you, right? So like being just opposed <laughs> is kind of critically, critical methodologically. Opposed, yeah. 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 There's nothing more important to French intellectualism <laughs> than parasite. <laughs> anyway, the, the yeah. cold, the cold war frame, the totalitarianism vibe and the cold war framing is a little bit of an aside, but I, I feel like, yeah. If you're gonna buy the the spectacle argument, which which I kind of kind of liked to begin with, like to to like move progressively to like the kind of politics he is that are suggestive, you have to like agree that that is a, a an adequate way of like representing mm -hmm. the state of yeah. affairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so like I, I guess like the one place to start would just be that you know so he different he says it's not mass media right and I think when we hear spectacle. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I've seen that cover a million times of, you know, people gathered together watching a film or something with those like 3D goggles on or something, whatever. Um, you know, you are, you, I think your mind tends to quickly go to like, yeah, associating, associating the spectacle with mass media. But it's also mm -hmm. not, not that. Uh, because there was mm -hmm. yeah. one aspect of like media consumption that I think is paradigmatic for what he means by the spectacle, which is that people are gathered together and one, they're passive while they're together, mm -hmm. in their togetherness. It's not a real togetherness, it's like atomization, being next to one another, mm -hmm. sitting in stands or sitting in a, in a theater or sitting in front of entertainment. Um, yeah, it's serialized. Exactly, so there's a kind of like, you know, serialization that's essential to it, and that, that it's passive and it's, it's contemplative as he uses the, that term, right? Um, it isn't, there's no, it doesn't call upon like any activity. Um, and, you know, this is just as a kind of material fact, like true, that the w the only way or like, places where Americans gather together is like for like entertainment and shopping, right? Like totally <laughs> serialized. Those are the only times you'll mm -hmm. see crowds, right? Like, and it's being, uh, what's the expression he uses, Gil, alone in the crowd or a lonely crowd? Lonely, lonely crowd, crowd yeah. yeah. Yeah, the lonely crowd. So part of the spectacle then I think is just, so it isn't just mass media. It's because he says the spectacle is not a collection of images. That's how he puts it. It's a social relation between people that is mediated by images. Right. right? So it's that atomizing, serializing effect of the spectacle or like essence of the spectacle, I guess, that uh, I think it might be like a good starting point. And yeah. that atomization is engendered. Images are critical to that atom, like that process of atomization, the alienation, not just of us from like what we do, but the alienation of us from each other, the separation of us from each other. Right? I have another aside that's like kind of total. I'm going to, I like these sides. It's not a philosophical <laughs> point, but I was shopping today. I was buying a gift and then I found Classic, myself. classic consumer society spectacle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I was just shopping, but like, Cringe. Mostly when I shop, I, I, I have something I, I want specifically. So I'm like really not the best consumer for a whole set of advertisements, but I'll be like the best consumer for a very small subset of advertisements. Um, <laughs> nice. But then I, and I, and it occurred to me while I was buying this gift, cause I actually just had, I wandered into like my favorite, you know, like contemporary, like fashion store and I came out and I bought something and then I saw all of these people like hanging out and I constantly think to myself, like, how is it that other people are so hip all the time? I've wondered this since I was yeah. like 12 because like I was always like begging my mom for brand name clothes because I didn't have any and I desperately wanted to keep up with the Joneses as like a junior high schooler and like a high school and even in the college, mm -hmm. I like, I really wanted the, but I didn't have a lot of money. So like I wanted to buy exactly the right thing. And then I and, and it's always boggled my mind, like, how does everyone always know to buy the hip stuff? Whereas, like, I don't I can never decide what thing to buy. I just know I want to buy one thing that will, like, make the look. And then I realized what they literally walking down the street. I was like, oh, my God, they do this because they shop for fun. They go outside and they just, like, mm. socialize while shopping. And then they accumulate the hip stuff. They don't seek <laughs> one thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. I've been doing it wrong. I have to have friends. <laughs> yeah. I sh I have to have friends I shop with. Cool friends, yeah. But, yeah. Right. <laughs> but that's how I should socialize if I want to like. That's the way that like leisure was conquered, as he puts it. Like leisure was conquered by the yes. spectacle. 
But what's so what's interesting there is that it seems like the move that he does is you think the spectacle is something that you see, but you know, but what you see is already undergirded by you know the way Owen said it, you know, a social relation or social relationship or an apparatus. And so I think what he's saying is that the the spectacle is how a society is arranged for people to engage with it. You know, he has this very strange line where you know, goes you know, this is not to say, however, that the spectacle itself is perceptible to the naked eye. The spectacle is by definition immune from human activity, inaccessible to any projected review or correction, is the opposite of dialogue. So I think the spectacle or the spectacular, he even plays on, he goes from spectacle, spectacular to speculation. It's what is imposed upon us as a relationship that we don't aren't able to really give feedback to, or any feedback we give is you know, really just illusory. So what it means to to be hip whether or advertisements or political representation he is talking about a mode of of living where social relationship or what the social relationship is is simply opposed upon you and you either have to ingratiate yourself to it or find yourself alienated from it and so he's describing um, you know maybe to not be too technical he's describing very real power dynamics of how people are mobilized um you know uh, in their togetherness that finds his expression in images, but he mm-hmm. seems to want to peel back mm-hmm. the image and say, what type of society uh, arranges these images? Mm-hmm. People that shop mm-hmm. together on Saturday. <laughs> that type of society, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. thought you were going to say people that shop together, die together or something. I was like, oh no, shop together, ride together. I was like, okay. See, Some weird might, form of that solidarity. Might look like it's, that might look like, look like it's fun, but it is still survival for Debor, which I think is cool how this expression he has. He uses the term like gilded survival, right? So it looks oh, yeah. like people are out like, quote unquote, like enjoying themselves. And it seems to be something like life. I'm not at work, like living my life. I'm out with friends like shopping. Uh, but he's like, no, <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Right? this is just a kind of reconfigured survival. It isn't life. You have no mm-hmm. agency in there. Like there's no, it's still like totally captured by passivity. Uh, mm-hmm. You're not, you know, you're not living. I don't want to. It would be like the grouchy. Like shopping can be fun, I guess. If you, you know, you're, you're, homies, <laughs> you're with your homies. Like, well, wait, here's the thing. It is survival in a certain way, because for all the reasons you just said. But think about it. The other big mystery, aside from how people knew how to buy all the hip stuff, was mm-hmm. how can you afford? Like, where are you getting all this money? Like, yeah. I was. Mm-hmm. I've always been genuinely confused by this. Always. And the only mystery. answer. Yeah, it's a huge mystery. How to Very like mysterious. when I think, oh, I want to buy a pair of pants. I'm like, wow, you know, that'll like take a chunk, you know, my this week. Maybe you know, I like make a decision. But other everyone just has all this shit, and so I've always wondered how every season you buy these things because you have to the new trends you follow them, mm-hmm. and you have to spend money every season to do the same thing. And I'm like, they can't afford. It. It's not that either. Either all there are a lot of rich, more rich people than I know. <laughs> or actually, you can't afford it. You are just serving this, servicing this with debt, or something. Like there has to be like some other explanation, yeah. other than you just can buy all these things. This, I think, is why this is tied to the like development of capital to a certain point, right? Like he talks about it as the spectacle. At some point, he says is like the accumulation of capital to the point that it becomes image. And it starts to feel like, like I said, overproduction crisis. There needs to be done something with all of these fucking clothes that we're making every new season. Someone's got to buy them. And now we're going to have like images of happiness, right? That are projected that allow you to form your desire in accordance with the needs of an overproduction crisis. Mm. Um, it starts mm, to feel too point. like there's it starts to sound like Veblen to me a little bit in some places where like, you know, it's, it's about like conspicuous consumption. There needs not just to be the consumption of a good, but the like ostentatious demonstration, the appearing to consume where like uh, now other people are consuming the image of your consumption, which is now the form of your happiness. And that's a pseudo need. It's a pseudo need, right? It's not actually answering to the, to the needs of life or of living, I think. And so we've got this like passivity, the becoming autonomous of like the appearance of consumption like for itself and this is all just a means of capital accumulation separating the workers from what they actually require and also from the living substance of their own labor but it also it also does something else so uh, what while Lillian was talking you know, 
What I actually started thinking about, this is going to sound like an aside, but I swear I, I loop it back in. Why so many horror movies take place in suburbs? Because suburbs seem like the hmm. place of social tranquility and safety. And as someone who came <laughs> from you know, a relatively lower class to an uncomfortably middle class, by that I mean you are always worried if you're going to make your next mortgage payment. So on the outside, everything seems great. But mm. all of these people are living on a knife's edge. And mm -hmm. so it, it seems like the pseudo need is also the, the generation of an image that actually hides a growing precarity that is, mm -hmm. you know, um, expanding under a situation or a moment in time. Because is this when was this written in the 60s, I'm guessing? Yeah, 67. 67, where it seems like the standard of living is rising. Where it mm -hmm. seems as if you know the the brutalities uh, uh, of capitalist exploitation that's being you know shaved off at least in you know if you want to call it the Western or the or the global North, but what's being masked, what you're you're losing in spectacle is that actually you know the conditions of life are becoming ever more fragile. So you're buying these hip clothes, but you're servicing it with debt. You're getting all the new mm -hmm. the new dishwasher in your house, but you know, you go inside the house, you look at that marriage and the they're like looking at these bills. They're pulling out another credit card. But when they go outside, like, hey, we're great. We're the hey, Jones Frank. inside. Like, are we? Hey, Frank, <laughs> things are great. Oh, new lawnmower. Yep. Ooh, Everything's nice great lawnmower. over here inside. He's just like, oh, my God. I, I don't know if I can keep going with this. And so, you know, I wonder when he mentions speculation, he's also, I don't know if he's talking about financial speculation, but the birth of a, a sort of a speculative economy of, you know, always living on the knife's edge, always, you know, borrowing against the future and, you know, and seeming like this is what you need to do. And so I wonder if that can also help to distinguish between what are real needs and pseudo needs for DeBoer and you know, and is he allowed to make that that distinction you know yeah. I, I I wonder if the pseudo need is a is a need that is simply an image need but you know it seems to me that maybe a real need actually gets to something organic and material that doesn't necessarily find its expression in images yeah I wanted to just like piggyback on <laughs> your uh your portrait of the suburb, which is really I good. was thinking about um, the suburbs the whole throughout the whole I book. I love coming yeah. for the suburbs. Yeah. I mean, like he says at some point that the spectacle presents itself as this like enormous, undifferentiated, homogenous positivity. Right? Like <laughs> everything everything good will appear. Everything okay. that appears is good. Appears We're is all good, doing yeah. great. It's all good. Like everything will appear and everything that appears is gonna be great. And like mm. this is the sort of like They'll lie about it, and I think this think also, of the like, trouble you get in in the suburbs if you're if you don't take care of your lawn. Like they will fucking come for you. <laughs> oh my! Like Lord. seriously, it's, it's illegal so not to keep the appearance of uh, not to keep the of proper tidiness. appearance of your exactly. Yeah. Wait, is this what is this in Canada or is this everywhere? I think it's in the states too. Um, so yeah, it's definitely I think it's a pretty gen general rule that you. That, yeah, that there I was are say, there well, are municipal. Might be that the, Cana the Canadian suburbs. Are <laughs> I mean, Canadians like, are, Canadian <laughs> suburbs are yeah, they're their own special special beasts. They seem nice up diverse. there, but don't move to the suburbs. Don't you dare! This fake this fake niceness, this like facade, is part of like the spectacular capture of life, yeah. right? And I, this I, is again, it's negation. Can I yeah. just say, I think this is like a cool. He uses the term legitimation. He talks about the spectacle as a kind of legitimation. I think it's mm -hmm. a really interesting, like, innovative contribution to the concept of, of legitimation and how capitalism gets legitimated. Because it's he, he, one of the things I think he's trying to say is that legitimation isn't just by, like a, an idea. It's not like um, a set of arguments and even the human rights or laws. Like, it isn't concepts that does the real heavy lifting of, like, legitimating the system. It's like the actual stuff that we do and the way things appear – is the is the legit is where the legitimation happens like it it happens practically mm. it's a set of <laughs> images that infu that infuse and guide our practical life if that makes sense right so cuz i'm trying to think like what what is he trying to get us with the concept of the spectacle that you don't get with just ideology or that you don't get with right. like false consciousness mm. and and i think it's or that value. like yeah, and I think it's that they, those things also try to make those other uh, uh, those are also ways of making sense of legitimation and how a system uh, that's brutal gets legitimated. But this one is he's saying it look, look that legitimation is done by like the appearances and not just as appearances as like epiphenomena. It's done by appearances, not ideas, and those appearances are like an integral part of our our practical life and it 
what, mm-hmm. how we make our practical life intelligible, how we make our desires intelligible. Like it's, it's such a, it's a much deeper conception of legitimation. Like that's where it happens. It's the lawns look nice in capitalism. Okay. <laughs> and I, you, you, all right. You don't have to tell me some argument about, Oh, like it's human nature to be competitive. And this is more commensurate with human nature. So that is all, those are those ideas that that is like, you know, not doing any heavy lifting whatsoever. Yeah. What's cares? really doing the heavy lifting. Smiling. Yeah, exactly. What's really doing the heavy lifting is like, have you seen like in, the inside of a Whole Foods or like the wine bar or whatever? Like that's, it looks and feels a certain way. <laughs> and that's where like the legitimation of capitalism happens, right? Like it doesn't, it's not happening with like, you know, in, in the classroom or whatever. Yeah. They're not reading Hayek or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's not right. like, exactly. It's not like, oh, Hayek's ideas are filtering through or some Locke's ideas or whatever. It's that, you know. It's the way that you actually like experience, desire, see perceptual the world reality. around you. Yeah. The, that perceptual activity is the conversation of like the economic mode of production with itself. You know what I mean? To, it's the yeah, it's to, the legitimation. To this point, to this point, like he said, like maybe one way of distinguishing it from ideology, although as you all know, one of my hobby horses from forever is like saying that ideology critique is better than everyone gives it credit I, I like, for. I, I, I like, I'm a, no, 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 me too. But, yeah, I like critique of ideology. We're all, like, you know, we're all in, on board. We're all here. on this team. Yeah, yeah. But like, you know, very explicitly, he says like, what I, when I'm talking about the spectacle, I am absolutely not talking about something super added on top of society. Mm-hmm. It's not as though like, right. first there's the economic and then there's an image of it. Like, no, these things are thoroughly interpenetrated, mm-hmm. right? Like at the level of the base now, we ha- if you want to use our base superstructure, like at the level of the base, everything is image mm-hmm. uh, already, right? Mm-hmm. And this like legitimation work, like you said, doesn't require mediation through ideas. Ideas When's the last time anyone had an idea? <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Like, I've never had no, an idea. I've never I had an idea. Since the me. beginning of this like semester, I was like, any, "What's you know, what's your exposure to philosophy?" And literally, none of them had a single ounce of any exposure whatsoever to philosophy. So <laughs> it's not the ideas doing you know that are doing the work. Wow, we've really run the world. Oh my huh? god, this <laughs> is so. You know what? North America is so degenerate. It, like it no like I had a, <laughs> a collapsing empire. What do you expect, man? Like, yeah, the <laughs> empire in decline. The imperial core is I mean, okay. We're done. I was in my my German class. I'm taking an intensive German class this this month. I'm like repeating a class. Anyway, Zoom learning didn't go well for me, so I had to like backtrack a little bit. And um, the my teacher asked like what I did. Some for some reason, human nature like came up in our class discussion, and. Well, and like people were saying, oh, human beings are so selfish and all of this. And (laughs) I said, well, some people think that, but also other views involve. (laughs) And she was like, she was like, oh, are you a philosopher? And I said, on site, on site. Oh, my God. And then then suddenly and then the other students were like, what's the answer? And I was like, "Okay, calm down. Stop it. And then (laughs) and then she was like. You know, oh, well, I haven't studied philosophy since high school. And I was like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Nobody, like, who, do you know what I mean? And, like, she's talking about something normal. And she's like, they don't do that in the U.S. And I was like, and I, like, made a face. And then she started laughing because one, one of the only like, One of the need- only remaining arguments for France is that philosophy is, like, one of the most heavily weighted <laughs> subjects on the back uh, when you graduate wow. from high school. So. Like, North America, we don't even teach, like, English or math. We're not... Like, we're <laughs> not like, uh, unclear how much school happens over here, but... yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I want to return to Gil's point because what, what you said there, it, it, it kind of, like, cooked my brain because, you know, an easy way of reading Debor is he's saying we need to peel back the spectacle so we can see things as they really are. Mm-hmm. But if the, if the image is at the base and... That's not even what he's saying. And I think that this comes back to his beef with economy, where he seems to think the economy is a place of speculation, is a spectacular mm. site. And so it's not about even can we see the real economy? And I'm putting all the scare nice. quotes because even as I'm saying that, what would I mean by seeing what the real economy? It's a, it's a great abstract concept. Mm-hmm. But you know, he's saying that to live under the dominion of something like the economy is to be beholden 
to a certain form of speculation, spectacularizing, where it isn't about, you know, the real reality is being hidden by the phenomenal realm. It is that actually real reality is this um, perceptual engagement of generating pseudo needs. And so it's not about whatever authentic politics is. It's not about getting back to real reality. It's about modifying social reality such that mm-hmm. um, images aren't the only mediation we have with other people. Now, I don't know yeah. if that makes sense, but that that struck yeah, me as like well. Modifying it, like practical activity such that truth can become possible in a certain way. Yeah, yeah it's like at some point he says something like historical thought can be saved only if it becomes practical. And like, I think that one way of characterizing the sort of passivity that's endemic to what he's identifying as the spectacle is that everything becomes very contemplative, right? He says this in a couple Mm -hmm. of different places. We just like, we contemplate images of things. Money is capitals contemplating itself and like Hmm. contemplating its own. Really funny way to put it. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, And like, Again, we we made a joke like this in the last episode about how, like, you know, with Hegel, he says this about Hegel. He's like, yeah, Hegel is like the world's self-understanding, which it turns out that, like, all things good, you know, we're, we're great. And then with Marx, it's like, actually, uh, just contemplating seems like not enough. We might actually have to change the world. And, like, I think De Boer wants us to really take that seriously. He actually drags Marx, the, Marx though, too, because he says later in Marx's life, once the commune, the Paris commune failed... He says, like, he was uh, cloistered. He was, like, doing cloistered scholarly work in the British Museum. <laughs> yeah, he's like, hold and, up in the British Museum. Hold up in the British Museum. And basically that had a debilitating effect on the theory itself, that it was no longer tied to, like, an ongoing practical, you know, active revolutionary activity. I mean, that seems like, that seems right. And, like, it's something that, like, we, I think, ought to, like, be worried about for ourselves and anyone who does, like, critical theory, right? Like, we talked about this a long time ago with Robin, um, but like, yeah, to what extent are we as like theorists of the real movement of the abolition of capitalism, <laughs> like tied in with actual on the ground movement and organization, or are we just contemplating in a new way, right? Like, are we, are we also still just being contemplative? Uh, this I'm is mostly a live contemplating currently. Me too. Yeah, I'm, doing yeah, a lot of contemplating I'm mostly contemplating. Fog. Yeah. <laughs> in the past, in the past I mean, pre-pre-pre-pre Lillian was doing it was in many more meetings. Um, yeah. I don't currently go to many meetings. I don't know. I don't know about y'all. The meeting, I'm intervening the meetings, however, directly in the world process. Like I'm right there. Yeah, you're, yeah. I'm, I'm an agent of spirit. But well, I, you're part I, of I, Canada's I underground it. council movement. You know, it's not a lot of people are talking about it, but. <laughs> There's actually like, <laughs> but, but we, we out here, we out yeah. here. I, I want to push this point because not because, you know, I want us to like, you know, now do a type of pile, pile on the board. I actually like really appreciate just trying to understand what he's saying and seeing what's useful. But I, I, I think his issue with the economy that even his critique of Stalinism is the idea that it's still the economy that's the agent is that, you know, I think he wants to say that to no longer be contemplative, to actually act, the economy isn't the site of action, that politics nice. must have some sort of autonomy where it's not you know um, having its ends decided by whatever this thing called the economy is and I think yeah. you know for someone who's a Marxist that might sound like sound like a really deeply strange thing to say you know maybe he thinks economy is a synonym for capitalism and so you shouldn't think that you know your liberation is going to come through simply reforming the status quo but I think he's making a, a, a sort of deeper claim that maybe is a part of his peculiarity where the economy is not the site of freedom for him. Politics um, is, you know, the attempt to constitute an alternative form of social reality that isn't subservient to the economy. And I, th- I think that that's just odd. And maybe, maybe, I'm, I'm putting this out there, you know, he sticks with the language of the proletariat, but he wants to say, he doesn't say this explicitly, but he wants to say something like, so... Um, politics will not just happen on the factory floor or something. That, you know, politics will need to have some sort of separation from only a sort of economism. I'm I'm wondering if that's what he's saying. Hmm. I'm not trying to put words in his mouth, but it's just like he keeps talking about economic necessity. So it might be helpful that like I think his the the beef with the economy that he keeps coming back to is that the economy has become like a try. He calls it a triumphant independent force. Like, it's become autonomous. It has its own, like, it doesn't answer to anything. It doesn't answer to politics. It you know it doesn't answer to any externality. Right, because there's no politics in it. 
Like that. Yeah. Okay. My brain is just like inversely related to these. Seven yeah. Yeah. Things. So, anyways, <laughs> oh, I, I just really think like I just that. think just for clarity's sake, I think it's like it's that we are under the dictatorship of the economy, and it is become it's triumphed as a as a fully independent force that answers to no norm, answers to no group. It you know. I mean, this is like a very basic. I take this to be like a very basic Marxist insight, right? Like every Marxist worth their salt knows this is true that what we're talking about when we're talking about capitalism is this thing becoming autonomous capital and capital accumulation for itself for nothing else yeah it's for not for else. meeting needs because it's crea- it's it, not it actually what needs. it does is it just it creates, creates all kinds of new. false needs like quasi yeah. needs and yeah it isn't right yeah. all in the service of its own enlarged expansion and like you know expanded reproduction that's what right? it is like, yeah it's this- development it's it's its own internal imperatives of development that we are all it's a totally independent force and we're all subject to it like a, under a dictatorship that's why especially in our hyper spectacular age maybe we're obsessed with looking at chirons and images of gdp is up mm-hmm. the this number is going up these Line graphs go up. these graphs Line mean bad thing if you have this type of debt and those are real but also it feels like oh i'm just beholden to these random images <laughs> representing things to me like is my life going to go well or is my country going to collapse because the dollar is going up <laughs> line go up I mean, this is also why it's like always silly when people ask questions about like, why is Jeff Bezos, why is Elon Musk like trying to make more money? Why doesn't Zuckerberg have enough? And it's like, you fool. What are you talking about? (laughs) There's no end to this. You don't have enough. Enough? They're in thrall too, right? Like surely Mm -hmm. it's a better, they get a better existence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If I could choose, I mean, I would choose their their position, honestly. But it is imposed necessity on all levels. I said this before, but our billionaires are so whiny. They don't seem that happy to me. Like they're such whiny little pieces of shit. Like, (laughs) you know, this is not like Rockefeller and we miss them. I think that I've, I've been told off before for saying for saying this but i do actually think there's just a decrease in quality of ruling class uh oh and <laughs> like do you, like just in every way like where's our like carnegie libraries and shit or whatever like we don't intellectual get intellectual life yeah they don't like have any desires to do anything literally outside of themselves like this in- insane narcissism <laughs> and it's not that those things are not present in like previous generations of ruling class people it's that like the morals of the capitalist class itself and their outlook on like their role has actually become so atomized to the point where like, yeah, like you can't even imagine something like the Carnegie library system being built. (laughs) And that doesn't like justify Andrew Carnegie, like as such, it's just like, clearly this man felt like, well, like clearly he felt like he wanted to leave a legacy that was in the public interest, whether that was because he actually valued libraries and thought an educated like workforce was better or because he just wanted to be remembered well. Like, who knows? Mm-hmm. But like something about he thought he should do that. And like what is clear is that Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg do not <laughs> think they should do any such thing. And They're like, I actually this do is things. like what happens when you have a ruling class yeah, that isn't shook. To go like to outer even, space. This is what happens when outer not... space or meta. Yeah. Meta also yeah. looks like such shit. Like, why are you talk about spectacle? Sims. Oh yeah. Sp- yeah. Talk about <laughs> fucking spectacle. Like the meta. Billions shit is of dollars went into meta to get shitty avatars of Zuckerberg where I guess he lives there now away from the rest of us. Like, I'm, I love that for you. So Musk is on Mars. Zuckerberg's in meta. Yeah. yeah. They talk about. They're um, living in the spectacle. Literally. They are. They're obs- you know, they are the spectacle. They are. All that yeah. is solid melts into air. It's a nightmare. <laughs> Very much they are nightmare. literally the personification of an economic role in being. The spectacle. It's perfect. It is definitive. They are definitive proof to that DeBoard is right that nobody at any strata of this society is actually living. Just like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, is that, like there's no, zero I look vital. At them, I see anti-life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's the negation of life. I just, yeah. yeah. Uh, what, what does he call it? Like you said, like gilded or augmented survival. Augmented survival, They're just the, yeah. the, they most, have the most gilded augmented, most gilded survival. Yeah. 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 And I actually think that's interesting that it's not even flourishing. They're, they are just trying to scrape by each quarter with some type of gain and so i guess like you know like i mean like i feel like my my you know sort of last question about this is so what the fuck is life for DeBoer? oh yeah what's like really living 
You know, well, what what is the substance of it? You know, because you know there has to be something that is counterposing to. I look, you won't get any argument from me. This is a nightmare. I don't <laughs> love it. I'm not having the best time. But you know, so what 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 is what is life? Is it um council communism? Are we? I think are it we would have it? to be. I think it would have to be the first chapter of the book is not. It's it's he's talking about the spectacle, but the first chapter is called separation perfected, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that life for him, even if this isn't coextensive or if it's not a definition, I think life would have to do with actual connection, right? Actual connection and non-separation, mm-hmm. right? And I think that he, I mean, when, you know, the situationists were so named because they were like about constructing situations in which this sort of reified, alienated atomization could be undone in some way or overcome. I think that for De Boer, like there are moments when we actually have connections with other people and that's something like where life is possible. Maybe not always, Mm -hmm. Um, but like, Mm -hmm. and that can't happen through this mediation of images, I think is his argument. Yeah. Um, But like, I don't know, like moments of love or genuine like camaraderie or belonging with people. Solidarity. The feeling of an actual political victory that you know you had a hand in with others, perhaps. Yeah, because I, I, so I would say connection was it would definitely be part of it, and then like activity, like being able to yes. oh, okay. be active and not to right not to have not to be constantly engaged in like pseudo activity um, or mm. frenetic false activity, <laughs> but to actually Reaction. have like yeah, yeah like I don't Reaction know or passivity. Yes, that that would I have just to be feel like it, yeah. what's really difficult about some of these distinctions like the issue of needs and pseudo needs and activity and pseudo activity is like like i actually think there is something to this like i i would i I do i think i implicitly do think that there is a way of making that distinction that is not just straightforwardly wrong um but i i feel like the you know the postmodern turn really uh was against making those kinds of distinctions which is in my opinion what makes it mostly reactionary but um mm. that but i i think that it's worth asking like how you might defend those kinds of d- distinctions from like either just like hyper social constructionist views like all needs are you know our pseudo needs are our pseudo needs you know yeah. and so there really is no way of prioritizing needs and the only thing left is the determination of all of discourse and just bodies banging against each other in politics. I don't, I don't know, but (laughs) there, there has to be, you know, and just like saying that some needs are more important than others. Like, you know, there's your, there must be authoritarian. If you think some things are more important (laughs) than others, there's just like a set of kind of obvious objections that, um, I wonder, like, because he's writing this at at a time where that wasn't really, like, coming out in full force yet. And I just don't think the same text could be written the same way today. So, Hmm. Yeah, I think even 10 years later, in, like, the 70s, it would be hard to, like, make claims like this without, like, you know, the skeptical eye of the post-structuralist critic, right, being like, oh, no, these, like, distinctions don't hold up. Oh, like, there are traces of non-life in life, and in life there's traces, (laughs) you know, in non-life there's traces of life. Leave Derrida alone, Owen. (laughs) I didn't say, I wasn't naming names, you know, (laughs) I mean, I don't know. He does say... Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I think that at some point he t- he says something like, look, he even owns it. I, I was trying to find the quote, but I can't find it. But he says something like, look, yeah, of course, like this distinction is not completely fast that like, how am I going to say that some of these needs are artificial and some of them like aren't like they all are like, obviously, but like so many of these needs that I think he wants us to or our desires that he wants us to like put in the pseudo bin are the ones that would not exist if it weren't for that imperative of capital accumulation to continue. So like that's maybe a first pass at how we might try to articulate this distinction, right? Like those clothes you got to get every season. Like, do we need that? Would that need at the same time that like, sure, like aesthetic expression, artistic passion, you know, self-expression, whatever, like that's all well and good. But would these desires and needs exist in the same way if it actually weren't all about feeding the engine of capital accumulation. I think that's where he'd like start to try to answer the question. But I'm also not sure that I find that I don't know how I don't know how useful that heuristic ultimately ends up being. I mean, I think for that's precisely useful, the yeah. sorts of reasons. Yeah. Like what if we have socialism and then we find out that actually people just want to shop? Like that's what um <laughs> like that's what people take away from like the the DDR. They're like, oh my God, 
they don't like in like in my other German class, it was like they didn't have consumer goods. And the yeah. people are like, oh, there must have been a famine. And my teacher was like, no, no, no. You know, it was mm-hmm. communism. No, everyone had food and housing. <laughs> but they couldn't buy. They were really excited about Levi's. You understand. And <laughs> there were all these things they couldn't buy. So there is this, like, popular narrative that, like, that is, in fact, like, a need mm-hmm. that is just there. And, like, that socialism can't satisfy. And, like, I, I, I think that deep down in, like, a lot of individuals i think people share that that fear that they don't get to go shopping like yeah well, I, mean, I, mean, yeah. I genuinely don't like will people want to go to yeah. disney world and socialism i don't know like i want to say no but there's the part that's like come on man i mean you know. i don't believe that so i think that you know, he's, <laughs> when he talks about leisure and what happens with people and their, what people do with their like non-work time, because obviously the work time is passive, right? You're at the whims of management and all these external whims. Like you have no act, even the activity you do there is a kind of passive act, passive activity because you have no ownership over it or over the product of it or the ends like for which you are doing that work. So that's out of the picture. Mm. That's a totally, you know, <laughs> in terms of a candidate for like where life might be rather than like pseudo life. If we want to maybe, yeah, it's shifted to pseudo life instead of pseudo need. Um, and then outside of work, it's also, he suggests like not, living either because it's also a kind of passive activity. I mean, does anybody, I don't, I don't believe that anybody like goes to Disney world and like has a good time, like, and, and, <laughs> and comes back afterwards and is like, I feel, Oh, like I just regenerated ready for another 50 weeks of, of work. You know what I mean? After that, after that experience of like walking around in the blazing heat in fake cities with like people that don't give a shit about you. And like for, ship food, for, that, and you have no money. Dollars Slurpee, like, and and, and, and your yeah. family's been screaming the whole time, and everyone's fighting and stuff. I just don't believe that anybody that, that <laughs> any of these like places where life is supposed to happen. Like, oh, what'd you do this year? Well, I went to Disney World or whatever. That's like the one thing. And I just yeah, I yeah, you know, I just don't think any life is happening. I'm not to, not to like single out Disney yeah. World if you're a huge Disney World stan or something, but you can apply this to any other of the stupid leisure things there that we do. The, kid, no the kids chance. of America are there is zero chance right now. that any any of our listeners are huge <laughs> Disney World stands. There's no shot. Yeah, I don't know why for a second there I got worried about offending the like the Disney World fan se- like section of our like fan base of the what's left of philosophy. <laughs> I've never actually been, so I don't know, you know, Maybe there's Man, some listen, mysteries there know, that listen. Yeah. You don't know what oh, you're talking about. Oh, he's backtracking now. Maybe it turns out. Maybe it turns out that if you go to Disneyland, Owen, you'll find that it is the purest form of joy imaginable. <laughs> you'll be activated and free. Man, think of the. I mean, this is like kind of it's actually crazy how like, they build fake cities. My mother cities there. refused <laughs> to take me to Disneyland like for some time because she felt this way. But then I think we went together one time as a family, her and me and my aunt, for my birthday. I mean, I, I can give you an, my I, mom's from my mom's from California. So we were already out there. And um, I as a child, I had a, a great time. And I think that <laughs> my, my mom was I don't I don't know if she had a great time, but I think I remember her thinking it was more fun than she thought, probably because I was having a great time. So I do yeah. feel like there is just like a kid. Okay, but hold on. There's another example. I think you could just give another example, which he mentions at one point, which is Paris. I mean, people go, there is a part of, there is a okay. whole Disney-ified, okay, hell yeah. there's a whole yeah. Disney-ified part of Paris, like the whole historical center, basically. And yeah, you go there in <laughs> August, all the French people are gone, it's blazing hot, it's just a bunch of miserable <laughs> Americans that are paying too much money for terrible things, you know, terrible service and shit food because they don't know where to eat or whatever. And they come back, I've seen this happen lots of times, they come back and they're like, oh god, that was terrible, back to work for another 50 weeks, you know what I mean? And and so, I don't know, yeah, I don't, there's lots of, we've Disney Disneylandified lots of places, made them fake spectacle locations rather yeah. than like living, cool. breathing places of like connection and life and so yeah but, i think it's but just, the thing that you you would enjoy is the actual connection of people that you are with but a lot of those places are not designed for that experience i mean when no. i was describing your kids are screaming it's blazing <laughs> hot you just want to be back your, the your waiter room. is like but, saying you know like fuck you to you and stuff like it's not yeah it's not fun but what lillian described it seems like that's like at least a glimmer of what yeah. 
a mm-hmm. substantive life could be. And, you know, that had less to do with like Disney World or Disneyland, but the, but the joy that, you know, that was happening there that, you know, her mom could participate in. But, you know, that's really, really hard in the life we've decided or has been decided for us to lead. Well, I think that does it for us today. Sorry once again to all of our Disney fans. Uh, new episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Also check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are Groucho Suave, Zach Clayman, Justin Goodman, Ian Adelson, Sammy Al-Irani, Romeo, Aleri Fowler, Shishli, Hari Kunzru, Lucy M., Gabby Collins-Fernandez, Jade Rivera, Axe, Laura Wagner, Morgan, Alice Bayangana, Georgiana Ulari, Allison Woodard, Tim Comfer, and Kai Farrow. Thank you all very much. If you too like what we're doing and want to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com, and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes and bonus videos. You can also buy some What's Up to Philosophy merch from the store linked on our site. Follow us at Twitter at Left of Phil, and don't forget to leave us good comments and reviews on your podcast apps. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye bye. Take care.